0: Matt, what I want to know is if you're trying to wear campers out in one week, what does that do to the staff? I'm, I'm, oh, they just keep going downhill. Okay, all right. Anyway, Mount Lusanne Camp has been in in operation for well over fifty years. I'm going to guess it's closer to seventy years. And it has been giving the gospel and bringing children and young people to the Lord all those years. And uh, it's just, we're just thankful we can be a part of a ministry that has that unique opportunity. We're going to be talking about personal ethics this morning. And uh, as we look at the book of Exodus, you're going to find out that some places when the law is given and the commands of the law are given, it's a little bit like the book of Proverbs because it doesn't always have a flow or a context that goes from one verse to the next. You're going to see a little of that today, but you'll see that in other parts of it also. But today we are going to look at being consistent in our dealings toward other people. One of the things that we need to understand as we become before, come before the Lord's table the Lord's, and partake of the Lord's supper, we need to, and I'm encouraging you to do this over the next half hour, is to look at your own life. And if you know, and God brings to mind things that you know you haven't dealt with, sin, issues that you need to get right before the lord please take care of them because god is very clear that when we partake of the lord's supper we are to examine our lives to make sure that we're living a life that's worthy of of what we've been singing about that christ died for us that our sins have been forgiven that death and hell have been conquered and we live in the light of that so i'm going to encourage you to do that that's why when we put out the the daily update we remind people be prepared for communion and i will tell you i'll probably say it again at the end is If you don't partake in communion, nobody is going to say, why didn't you do that? Or if you do, hey, should have you? Nobody's going to ask you that. That's between you and the Lord. And you need to do that. And I encourage you because God is very uh, straightforward about this, that uh, there are consequences if we partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Because we are declaring that we've trusted Christ and that we're looking forward to him coming back and answering for our lives. And if we haven't done that, if we're not living a life that's worthy of that, uh, we're lying to people on the outside by just simply partaking of communion. Today, we're going to look at a consistent approach toward people. It, regardless of their status, regardless of their relationship with us, regardless of any other point of reference toward us, that we need to make sure that we treat people the way God demands and commands us to do that. When we deal with it, people this way, we do away with revenge or vengeance, getting even, jealousy, bad blood bad blood covers everything, uh, charges of being unfair or even dealing out of prejudice. God will have none of those in a life that is living for him, a life that is holy. So let's look, and I just put one verse in front of us this morning. I'm encouraging you just to look at your, your uh, Bible for the rest of them. But in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, it makes it clear, we are not to lie about other people. Here's what it says You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Now, a malicious witness is one who acts upon rumors, gossip, or lies, or just plain making it up because it becomes literally malicious. Why? It's false. The way we deal with the world, the way we deal with other people, needs to be based on truth. I will use something this morning that uh, was a part of my life in the beginning of the week. Um, I, I was thinking this is the first time I had ever been to a jury trial. I was not there because I was on trial. I was not a witness. I was, and I wasn't on the jury. I was moral support for the victim. Um, and uh, I'm not going to use uh, specifics in this, uh, except for a few minor ones. If you want to, you can go on Live and look up crime on Wednesday, and you will know what I saw. It was heart-wrenching. It was heartbreaking. Uh, it had me sobbing a few times. I'll, I'll just have to admit that uh, because of the horrible things that people do to other people and the things that we would rather would be behind the scenes and under the covers, uh, come out in the middle of everything. It was an open trial, so anyone could have been there. But there were a lot of people that gave testimony. And when the, the bailiff or uh, ta- uh, the uh, court crier, I believe it was, said, raise your right hand and uh, swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that's serious business because you get in trouble for not doing that. Because if someone would would have come there with a vested interest and wanted to get somebody in trouble, they could have lied, but they would have been held accountable for that. That's perjury. He says, don't bear a false report. Even in your interactions and your attitude towards someone else, make sure that your attitude toward them is based on what is real, what is true, and what is verifiable. Everything you hear, and even some of the things you think you saw, aren't exactly what they are. You need to be very careful and make sure that everything you do is verifiable, that the accuracy is complete. That what you are basing your interaction, your attitude, or even what you say about someone else is verifiable. And then it goes on to say, there's something more. Make sure that you don't take sides with someone else just because they're your friend. Here's what it says. Verse two, you shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. I listened to every word of that trial. I was there for the whole time. And I heard at the end, the judge looking right at the jury even with a totally straight face said, you know what? If you don't believe something and it doesn't make sense to you, do not agree with, if everybody else is saying one thing, don't agree with them simply because you're in the minority and they're the majority. Don't simply say, okay, everybody else thinks that way, so I'll think that way. Don't do it. Don't just because the majority of people are saying one thing and you know and you cannot justify that it's true, then don't go with that. On the other hand, the judge said... And while you're doing this, if you find out, you know, I didn't quite have that right, now I've changed my mind, then by all means, change your mind. The point being is just because 51% of the people say one thing doesn't mean they're right. Think about it this way. In the country we live in, We're not a democracy. We're not a pure democracy. If we were, that would simply mean 51% of the people, when they would vote, then we would do it that way. No, we're a republic. In fact is, if you think about it, our country is based on how the church operates. You see, tonight we have a meeting. We're going to vote on a budget. We're going to vote on some officers and uh, they're going to vote whether Peter and I are doing a good job, those kinds of things. But they're not changing what the Constitution, the Word of God, specifically the New Testament, says a church is supposed to do. See, we live in a democratic republic where it's the rule of law. Well, the Bible is the same way. And it's saying, you know what? If 51% of the people tell us uh, in this congregation, by the way, that's never happened, that we should change what we stand for as a church, we're not going to change because the law, God's word has the final say. We can talk about how we're going to carry it out and vote on that. And we can have leaders that make decisions about all kinds of things, but the basis of what we do doesn't change. And so we need to go right back to truth is that we don't pervert justice by going with the flow. Think about it this way. Garden Chapel would not be Garden Chapel if we went with the flow of the church as a whole today. We would have a whole lot of different stances on a whole lot of different issues uh, in this world, because the church has gone the way of the world, by and large. Not all, but by and large, the church has gone totally against the Bible in some cases. I mean, dead set against the Bible. That is not us. We need to stick with absolutely what is true, no matter what everybody else is doing. You know what you told your children, and you know what your parents told you. Just because all your friends are doing that doesn't mean you should. You know, take a stand for what is true and right. And the Old Testament here makes that very clear don't take sides against someone just because everyone else. Now, verse 3 is a very interesting verse because we're going to link it. So look at verse 3 and then we're going to immediately jump to verse 6 because these two are the opposite sides of the same coin. In verse 3, it says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. And in verse 6, it says, you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. In other words, you are not to uh, say, well, this person is poor, they're disadvantaged, so we need to cut them some slack and, you know, not hold them accountable. The other one simply says, no, no, I don't care what their circumstances are. You need to not pervert justice. You need to Give them the justice that is due to them. We talked about uh, critical theory uh, a ways back. I did a whole sermon. I'm not going back over that. But there are oppressed and oppressor classes of people. It has nothing to do with reality. I'm an old, white, heterosexual male. By definition, that makes me an oppressor. You know what? I, I dispute that, but that's what critical theory says. In this case, it says, you know what? It doesn't matter wh- about that other person, whether they're poor or they've got means, you don't defer to them and cut them slack, or on the other hand, uh, you know, take advantage of them. You don't do either one of them. You need to be consistent in how you look at things. That's the biblical way. In fact, is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 5, which covers some of the same material as Exodus says this, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the rich, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. The trial I was at... um, you probably could have, if you wanted to, probably said, you know, this guy didn't have a good upbringing, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and, this happened and maybe, maybe we sh- should show mercy to this guy. The point is, he did what he did. In fact, uh, I'll get to the end of it, and the paper will tell you this, so I'm not telling you anything that's not public, is that the judge looked at him after she read the sentences and said, and I am now classifying you as a violent sexual predator. If you would ever get out of jail, here is what would happen. The chances of him getting out of jail are between slim and zero because um, the first opportunity for parole would be 101 years from Wednesday. The point is that was his third offense doing the exact same thing. But justice is justice and you don't vary that based on my sympathy or pity for the person. No, if someone does what is wrong, it's wrong. If somebody does what is right, it's right. That's the law. And the Old Testament is very clear. In fact is, maybe I shouldn't have done this. So if you want to shoot me, you can shoot me, but be fair and just with me. I said to the lead detective after the whole thing was over, as we walked out the door, I said, you know, in this case, I kind of like the Old Testament law (laughs) because they would be stoning this guy at this point. Now, I'm not saying we should have done that. That's not what I'm telling you. So don't go there. The point is justice is justice. And God is very clear. You need to answer for what you do. And we need to be consistent. And you say, so hold it a second. You sound like the hanging judge. I'm going to tell you the truth. I've been praying for this guy for a long time because I've been counseling the victim for at least a year and a half. I've been praying for this guy's salvation for at least a year and a half. I never, never had any idea of who this guy was before that. I've been praying for his salvation. You know what? Sitting there in the, the courtroom, I was praying that he would have to pay for his crime. On the other hand, I was sitting there praying that I would see him in heaven, be able to shake his hand because sometime he would repent, come to Christ, and be my brother in Christ. That sounds contradictory, but it's the truth. I can tell you that's exactly what I was doing. I believe that's the right view to look at because I don't want him loose doing this to another young lady ever in his life again. Point is, we need to be absolutely consistent in the way we deal with people. So it doesn't matter who the person is. I want them to come to Christ. I want them to be the best Christian who ever lived in jail or whatever. Or sitting here in this audience, either way, we don't show partiality. We are consistent in the way we look at others. But if you think that was hard, listen to the next part. And we're going to pick this up in verse four. It says, if you meet your enemies, ox or donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Notice the word that's used, your enemies, ox or donkey. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helplessly under its load, obviously they overloaded it or whatever, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it. Now notice those last words, with him. This is a guy that doesn't like you. He got something against you for some reason. You may not even like him at all. You may despise him. But he says, if this person actually needs help, you are to help this person. Think about that. Does that take you out of your comfort zone? You'd better believe it. It absolutely takes you out of your comfort zone. But that is what's supposed to be our attitude. You say, yeah, but remember, Paul, you tell us we're not living under the law. You're absolutely right. I'm glad you said that. Because you know what? Jesus said the same thing. And so did the apostle Paul. And it also is verified under the law in uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of people say, oh, well, in the Old Testament, it was kind of law, really stern. No, that's the Old Testament. In fact is, when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, he is actually quoting the law. When the Apostle Paul talks about loving your neighbor, he's talking about a quote from the law, from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 18. What did did Jesus said? You have heard it said. By the way, this wasn't from the Bible. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 says, you shall owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor, now listen to the last phrase, has fulfilled the law. You want to know how you can we don't live under the law, but if if you say, well, I want to fulfill the law anyway, you know what? Here you all you have to do is go here. And he says, you know what? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll fulfill the law. Because the law says you look out for the other person. That's what we should do. I have said this many times. I've over the past 34 years. I've had a number of married couple sitting in my office, and they are butting heads. At this moment, they don't like each other. They cannot say a good word about each other. They're sitting in front of me, and I will look right at the husband and say, because they're ready to split. They're ready to go their own ways, and I'll say, you know what, sir? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I said, that is a command. That is a command in Greek. I said, so that's a command from God that you are to love your wife. Yeah, but she is not lovable and I don't want to love her and I'm not going to do it. So, okay, I'll, I'll listen to that. But let me tell you the next one. Here's what Jesus said. He said, love your enemies. I'm I'm sorry. Love love your neighbor as yourself. I got ahead of myself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does anyone live closer to you than your wife? No. Well, if you can't love her as your wife, then you need to love her as your neighbor. Yeah, but I don't like her anyway. I, I, I want to get away from her. Then I say, and here's what Jesus said, love your enemies. Guess what? I don't care if you even think she's your enemy at this moment. You still need to love her according to the word of God, right? Directly from Jesus. The point is we need to be consistent in how we interact with other people. And that is we need to love them. Is that an easy thing to do? The answer is no, it's impossible on your own. Without faith in Jesus Christ, (laughs) you're never going to be able to carry this out. Without God's power, you cannot carry these things out. That's why we always have to come back to the cross. That's always why we have to come back to the work of Christ. Because he alone has conquered sin and conquered death on our behalf. And then given us the power to live above the circumstances. See, the circumstances here is, this guy ripped me off. He owes me money. He spread lies and rumors about me. And you know what? His, his property his donkey, his ox, whatever, you know, is in trouble, why should I help him? I'm just going to walk past. By the way, if you want to see how this works a little bit, look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you'll kind of get additional insight in that direction. Point being is no matter what the relationship of that other person has to you, you still need to be consistent in loving your neighbor as yourself. It also goes on in verse uh, 6, which we already looked at, uh, and then right on into verse 7. It says, keep far from false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. In this case, you could say, well, you know, that, that guilty person is the person that did something wrong. But in this case, the person who did something wrong is the one that brought a false charge. In legal terms, they call that perjury because you've accused somebody of something that's not true. And he says, if you're doing that, you're literally would be considered, I would say it this way, the law doesn't say this, you're guilty of judicial murder. Because you lied in court about someone and they got some kind of a penalty against them. If it was a murder charge, it would be, uh, and a death penalty, it would be judicial murder. Think about that. We don't normally think that lies make a whole lot of difference. Lies make a lot of difference. Even what you consider a little lie can turn into something very bad. And he makes it clear. Keep far from a false charge. The word charge there is a false matter. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be personal. It could be judicial. It doesn't matter. It's just a matter. That's all the word means. And he said, I won't acquit the guilty. You lie about somebody, you don't get acquitted. Wow. That is strong, strong language. But it goes on, and there's another... Part here. And and by the way, I want to tell you, I pitied the defense lawyer. She didn't have a case, but she did her best. I almost wanted to despise her because she is defending this guy who all the evidence showed that he did the crime. Um, And it was multiple, multiple evidence, and it was verifiable evidence by all means possible. But the point is, I wanted to despise her and think, boy, what kind of lady would do this and defend this guy? And then I realized, no, he has the right to have his rights defended. Whether he's guilty or not, he has the right to have somebody stand up and make sure that he gets a fair trial. She did her best to do that. And then I realized, and I had to sit back there. You understand, this was an emotional first part of the week for me. I went from... I wanted to be angry, so this this sermon fits. In fact, let me let me tell you, I didn't tell you this yet. When we were waiting for the jury to come back for, for a verdict, I decided I'm going to use my time to study. So I opened up, my, and by the way, I actually used the app on my phone to look at the book. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm retiring and I, and I finally come up with uh, technology to use it. I'm sitting there. So I opened it up to Exodus 23 and all the family and the people that were, and the prosecutors and uh, detectives that were in the room. I said, hey, listen to this. These are the first verses that I'm going to preach on in Sunday. And it was all about justice and the things that we've just looked at. But you know what? <laughs> the, the whole thing is in the bottom line is consistent. The court should be consistent. You should be consistent. We need to have personal ethics as well as ethics as a country, as a church. It doesn't matter. God requires us to be consistent in the way we deal with people, and we do. I wanted to despise this guy, and then I realized You know, I was on the verge of hating him. And then I realized, no, Paul, you better sit there and pray for him, which is what I did. I'm I'm, seriously, I was sitting in the back of the courtroom and I was praying for him. And then I started praying for the lady that was defending him. And I was praying for the witnesses because I realized that this has serious, serious, serious consequences in the end you go, how do, you, how do you, you balance those two? I don't believe you balance them. They are both there. You don't, you don't agree with something that's wrong and you don't tell something that's wrong and you don't believe something that's wrong. But on the other hand, justice is justice. Getting what is um, equal to the crime. Verse eight, and I'm going to end with verses eight and nine. Nothing should persuade us to not be consistent. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. Wow. Anything. You know what? You say, well, that's about somebody paying you off. Absolutely true. But think about it this way. If somebody says, well, you know what? If, if you love me, you will say this to twist what's going on. You're getting something. You're getting an emotional pat on the back. I don't care what it is. Anything that you receive from someone else that changes your view, makes you inconsistent, is not ethical. Not biblically ethical. And for all I can tell, even the world would consider that unethical. Anything that would change our mind that is simply not the truth is not right. But then there's one last passage, or one last verse that we're going to look at. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feeling of a stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Let's face it. It's really hard to lie about your friend. It's really hard to to say something nasty about your friend, just you know, or to, to even have bad feelings toward them. But you know, if it's somebody you don't know, and I just told you I experienced that, if somebody you really don't know, you can start to think and justify yourself that it's okay. Somebody strange to me. I don't know these people. So I can have a different viewpoint. He says, don't do it. He says, you know why? Because there was a time you guys were strangers. At first, hey, it was great. Until a king who did not, a pharaoh who did not know Joseph arose. And then all of a sudden it changed. He said, you know what it's like to be a stranger and to be taken advantage of. Don't do that. That is simply not my law. And you say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, guess what? Once again, the Old Testament principle shows up in the New Testament, two different places. It's going to say basically the same thing, but I'm going to read both of them. Hopefully it makes an impact. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. In everything, notice this one here is very specific. In everything, not most things, in everything, Therefore, treat people in the same way you want them to treat you. Now, listen to the last phrase again. I'm going to do this, one, this is the last time I'm going to do this. For this is the law and the prophets. Wow. Treating somebody the way you would want to be treated. I think it's King James says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. same, same exactly the same thing. The point is, you tr- and Luke 6, 31 says it this way, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Think about that. That's a test. I don't like when somebody does this to me. Well, then don't do it to other people. We also know if they do it to you, you don't retaliate because that would violate the first part of the sermon. Our whole idea is this. In my ethics, I am consistent in the way I deal with people. It can be very personal and private. It could be in the congregation. It could be in the law. It doesn't matter where it is, your community. It doesn't matter. When people look at you, they should say, that's Paul Malfair, that's whoever you are, and that person says what, says what they mean and means what they say. What they, what they believe to be true and what they know is true They stand by that and never vary. By the way, think about this. That gives you credibility and integrity because people know exactly who you are. And that's what God, that's the reputation God wants us to have uh, in this world. So personal ethics, Absolutely. Now, there are a lot of other things. Uh, we're going to talk in this chapter in the future about consistently, consistency in our relationship with God and other things. But today, it's personal ethics. As we come before the Lord's Supper, we need to realize, and if the men would gather, uh, meanwhile, um, I'm sorry, the men don't need to gather. What I'm going to say is if you are going to take communion and you do not have a communion cup, this is the last time we'll be using these. We're using them today because we already have them. The pastors, the cheapskate, I said, hey, let's use them up. So uh, if you don't like this, uh, blame me. Uh, The first service, we weren't sure we had enough, so we did it the other way. But if you don't have one and you need one, put your hand up. uh, The ushers will give you one. Okay, you got some over here and over there. Carefully, there is a fine, clear tab on the top. That's the one you need first. If you pull the other one, you will have grape juice everywhere. So I have to warn you that. So your good dress or your pants or your shirt, we don't want it. Grape juice. While they're finishing, I believe they're finished now. The Lord's Supper is for believers. If you've never trusted Christ, this is not for you. You have nothing to remember. There is no memorial for you, because this represents. It is not the blood and body of Christ. It represents that. It's a memorial. That's exactly what the Bible says. It's a memorial of what, and a reminder to you, of what Christ has done for you. It says that we do this, and we proclaim his death until he comes. It's a out. It's not only a reminder to you, but it's an illustration to those around you. I've trusted Christ. I know my savior and I'm looking forward to him coming back. And if you haven't thought that through yet, if you're looking forward to him coming back, you are going to have to answer for the life you're living. Yeah. When he comes back, we answer. And so you're saying, I'm ready to answer. That's why I made it clear in the beginning of the sermon, you eat and drink in a worthy manner, or there are dire consequences that go with it. If you know that you have known an unconfessed sin, don't partake. Nobody's going to ask you why. Uh, Either direction, nobody's going to ask you why. That's between you and the Lord, but I, I will tell you this. If you know there's something you need to confess, confess it we're going to pray here in a minute, confess it. And as soon as you leave here, get on the phone, get in your car, do whatever you need to do to get it right with that person. Uh, If you're not willing to do that, don't take communion, but I'm going to tell you, you just missed out on something very important in your life because you're saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. So I encourage you, no matter what, get it straightened out. It's a time of personal examination. And uh, again, won't make you a Christian, won't even make you more holy. It's simply a reminder of what Christ has done for you. So, if you would please, if you would take your uh, cup and peel the plastic top off, and you should be able to get the wafer out without spilling the juice. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for taking on a body like ours without sin and then dying in our place Thank you for giving us this visual reminder of the great price you paid. Eternal Spirit taking on a body, living among us, and then dying in our place. You had no sin to die for of your own. But we thank you that you gave your body, your whole life, for us. We thank you for that. And we thank you in your precious name. Amen. If you would take your cup and carefully open the tab. In the same way, after supper... He took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, This cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink from it, all of you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood. You made it very clear that it's only the blood of a perfect, spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, that can forgive sin. You said if our sins were like scarlet, they were red like like grape juice, that they would be white as snow when we trust you. Thank you for this memorial, this remembrance of that perfect blood that was spilled on our behalf to give us eternal life, and pay for our sin. And then we thank you, Lord, one more thing, your resurrection, which simply proved that you had done exactly what you said you would do, because you took our sin, and you paid for it. And if it was not paid for, you could have never again risen from the dead. You would have died and remained dead, just like any other unbeliever who has sinned on their account. Lord, I thank you for the resurrection. And Lord, I pray that as we go out from here, that we will look at the things we saw in the sermon, but we will also look at the things, most of all, that you have done for us on the cross, and our lives would be changed, that our ethics would be above reproach, that our interaction with people would be one that give a good reputation, not only to us, but mostly and foremost and above all else to our Savior who's done everything for us. Lord, I pray we would live by faith, realizing the power that we have to live the Christian life is not based on us, but based on what